Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. So, yeah, so I, I watched the film we're about to talk about with my, my twin brother, uh, Nick. Uh, friend, of guess, pod, friend of the pod, former guest. Yeah, Although yeah. after after this, maybe maybe not. Enemy uh, of the pod. What? Enemy of the pub potentially. Am I like so loud? Am I too you're always loud? louder than this is exactly else. as you always sound. Yeah. You are. Okay. Yeah. But I you're excited. It, it makes sense. Sounds like a good story. No, it sounds good. Quiet? This is still no, good. good. Tell us about your fucking okay. brother. Yeah. What's right, up? Tell deal. us about so your I, regular I brother. This, I watched this uh, uh, with my brother, and uh, he. We were watching it together, and fifteen minutes into the movie, they say Harrison Ford's character's name. Uh, uh, spoiler Book. alert, John, John Book. John Book. And I go, <laughs> okay, that's a little on the nose, yeah, isn't it's it? It's pretty on the nose. And, and he goes, uh, what are you talking about? And I go, what, what do you, what do you mean? And he's like, <laughs> I, and I said, I, sir, he has not like done a, one thing by the book this entire movie, sir. Well, I think there's maybe a different meaning intended there. Sure. Also, uh, that. the Bible, I right. think maybe, or, as, or and, at one point he might say he's going to throw the book at him. That would be pretty sure. sick. Uh, it's well, not really that kind of movie, but it would be really great if Arnold look, Schwarzenegger. I, I, he's try, he's, the, he spends the whole movie trying to book a guy to book him. Whoa! Okay. Uh, you're going away from my intended <laughs> yeah, my intended okay, point here, which is that it's clearly a biblical reference. And as the film went on, I kept pointing out, like, uh, "Wow, the only skill he knows is carpentry. That's really right. interesting. <laughs> wow, he gets shot through his side." Uh, right here. Wow, he was out for third day, and or he's out for two days, and then awakes on the third. Really, some wild. And every single time I would bring something like this up, my brother was like, I, like, seriously, legitimately, because he's a bit of a goof. Every single time he was like, I just don't think that's what what is going on. And I'm like, what are you? Jesus Christ, about? he's cool. <laughs> so my my brother, who is again uh, uh, on paper the smartest person I know, uh, again perfect test scores for college, mm-hmm. per- literally perfect test scores. Uh, too stupid to understand the, uh, uh, the you know that basic like, everybody religious... who writes for the New York Times went to Harvard and shit, right? Sure. Well, what, look, I, what I'm saying is, test scores know, maybe I... don't have a lot to do with <laughs> actual intelligence. Yeah, uh, I... test scores don't have a lot to do with going to Harvard either. Yeah, <laughs> I, about that's a really good point. And money yeah. and, uh, uh, you know. I love Nick very much. I really thought you were going to be like somehow he didn't know what an Amish person was. I really, I really like would <laughs> um, not have put that back. He would just so why do they like, call this movie so, Witness? So, so are these guys like are they religious or something? <laughs> Oh, whoops. I broke the rule. <laughs> we broke the rule. But speaking of uh, nepotism and uh, bribery or whatever oh, you already sure. mentioned, uh, this is Try Love. It's a literal roundtable podcast about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast by the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis. I'm hell at whacking. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. It's 4.30. Time for milking. I'm Cody Narvison. And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. That was the one, huh? <laughs> The only one. Uh, Top that. I'm Harry Mackin, and when I've had a lot of beers, my sister says I like to say things like, other podcasters couldn't tell a take from a bag of elbows. (laughs) You can find me on Twitter at Punish Take. I can still not really remember it. Yeah. 
Well, uh, folks, my name's Aaron. I would love to say that I have a quote, but I am sorry to, to take over the beginning discussion here, but I'm just so sad. I don't have a quote. You cannot find me on Twitter, folks. I have been, I believe, permanently suspended. Join the club, my man. Let's go. <laughs> what what for? I did, from I, don't take this Here's the wrong the way. Thing. I did not notice. I I don't. I have no idea. I don't. Because, look, I've, I've in the past flirted with maybe slightly more uh, objectionable uh, tweets and whatnot Take that may tweets. have gotten me in slight trouble. I don't think recently I've I've maybe I liked something that was like a little, uh, a little inflammatory, but I don't think I've tweeted or retweeted anything that was I inflammatory. Think that Elon Musk is just working with the CIA now to find anybody remotely left of center and just kick well, them off the platform. <laughs> I mean that that is a nice sentiment, but that also means that there are other people like me out there. And my opinion is that I am a special case here, and that he is targeting me personally. Because he views me as some sort of like it's um, like an MF Doom lyric, John Dude, Connor so powerful situation. That you got kicked out. <laughs> they had to get you yes. off Twitter. It was too too loud. I am, I'm I'm such a rebel, uh, uh, kind of destined to lead uh, the forces that will bring down uh, X, uh, as it is now called. Uh, but that, that they for had some to reason, like off. exactly, your being kicked off will actually bring about the prophecy. It will make me more powerful. Yeah. I, this is blue it, sky it is going out- to shoot up. Right at the very end, it's that absolutely he right. only Nothing could have been undone if he had uh, kicked you off of Twitter. So he yeah. brings about his own doom. Let's so hope so. I'm, look, I'll I'll put in uh, I put in some very uh, fake uh, joking appeals uh, that have clearly got instantly rejected. I, was, I will, was one of I'll them just over come on, one. man? Uh, I think I said that that uh, I was getting targeted by by leftists due to my libertarian beliefs. Uh, was one of them. <laughs> Which maybe I shoot myself in the foot here, stuff like uh, that. You I know. would like to say I also did that bullshit where I just like I sent yes. in a bunch of like absolutely Fake. stupid appeals. Yeah, did you send in a real appeal? I think eventually, and then they never even they responded like, to that one. <laughs> did they send you the tweet that you got? Eventually, yeah, they did. Eventually, maybe I need to. Maybe I just need to keep at it until because here's the thing. If I'm off Twitter, you know what? Probably good for my mental health. I would like to know what it was. You know, that's oh, you the, know like the Kafka esque, yeah. uh, you know, nature of of the the lack of knowledge here around my offenses. Is, to is not disturbing. even know why somebody put the bag over your head and shot you, you know, it's like you got to you got to look the assassin in the Elon eye. Elon Musk least. himself must not like right the defender of free speech. So I, you know, I'm sure he'll get back to me. I've been, you know, I've been sending him uh, uh, physical mail for years now, so I'll continue doing that. So, do you have any we'll, in- we'll hear about Do it. you have any interest in people following you, finding you anywhere else on the internet? Um, I think I'm RB please on uh, Threads and, and Blue Sky. So I guess yeah, if you, I, you know what? I got to get my Blue Sky numbers up. So what yeah. you should yeah. do is Just you that. should make a new Twitter account called Punished Arb. That would be pretty good. Punished R be kind of funny. Yeah, I might, I might at some point be forced to make just a small protected account solely for group chats. Larby, please uh, just start a new account all around Larb. Sure. <laughs> Thanks. I uh, yeah, let's, let's start. Yeah, let's actually start <laughs> the episode. That. I I had a timestamp of like where the episode actually starts, and now it's totally we, fucking, we just blew fucked. right past. We that, blew right puppy. past. Sorry, <laughs> I do want to say this movie played at the Trilon as part of a series on Peter, the films of Peter Weir. No uh, catchy title for this one. Just Peter Weir, September 2023 at the Trilon. Find a link in the show notes if you're listening to this contemporaneously. If not, check out the movies that have been discussed and uh, what's about to be discussed. Uh, you might find episodes from us on The Plumber, Fearless, uh, The Car This Day, Paris, The Last Wave, The Mosquito Coast, and Picnic at Hanging Rock over the next few weeks. Uh, don't Don't hold us to that. No promises. 
But it all starts with uh, one of the best movies I think I've seen, at least from the 80s. I really like this movie. Uh, not to spoil it too much, but I need to give, let Aaron sort of open the floodgates with the patented Aaron Grossman summary. Uh, Aaron, do you want to kick us off? Yes, indeed, folks. Come on, man. That was not – that was <laughs> – AI, Aaron, saying that. I don't yeah, know what you're talking about. about. Witness, 1985 film directed by Peter Weir. I'm so as sorry. Previously mentioned. I'm sorry. So sorry. Can we? We actually have to. We have to welcome back um, Cody to the podcast. We, we did the same thing for Aaron. Oh fuck! I just totally. I am. So, he was so natural. Uh, see, like whenever Cody's we're whenever Cody's away, it, it feels like it's a it's a it's a it's a like a deepening trench of sadness that we just cannot get out of. And then when he mm-hmm. reappears, when I see that wonderful backwards cap and wander flag behind him, and is that still the <laughs> it happened one night uh, poster that you got in the back? Yeah, I got a uh, it happened one night above my right police shoulder story. and police story above my left. Uh, <clears throat> the I'm I'm a man of two halves. Um, listener, you should know. You have it, folks. It perfectly frames his wonderful smiling face. But I feel like now that we're back in it, we're living a certain like a certain life that has been I don't know, sweetened somehow. Uh it's I I I'll say that we're we're living a sweet life with, because we're back with Cody. Thank you so much, everybody, for uh, enduring once more. Wow, Aaron really got the better end of the deal there <laughs> when Just, it comes to theme songs, huh? Hey, I uh, I, I need to come up with something else. <laughs> uh, back back to it. Uh, Aaron, you want to? Yes, indeed, folks. Uh, sure, yes. We're talking about Witness, 1985 film directed by Peter Weir. Film stars Harrison Ford as Detective, uh, Detective Sergeant, I guess his title, John Book who is uh, investigating a murder that took place in a train station bathroom. Uh, the only witness to the murder is eight-year-old Amish boy Samuel Lack, played by Lucas Haas, who is traveling with his mother Rachel, played by Kelly McGillis, um, after the death of his father and uh, Rachel's husband. Uh, Book eventually learns that the murder was kind of the, the result of uh, deep police corruption, and so he struggles to keep Rachel and her son safe as the three of them uh, kind of flee and hide out in her small Amish community. Uh, Joseph Summers in the film as Chief uh, of Police, Paul Schaefer, Danny Glover as Lieutenant James McPhee, Viggo Mortensen, uh, first credited film, uh, at least that I saw on Wikipedia, as Moses Hockleitner. Great name there. Um, kind of wild that he was credited at all, frankly, though. Yes, I don't think he has a single just speaking line. standing <laughs> yeah. around. Maybe that was like a po. Maybe that was like a, he hit it big later and they're like, ah, just go, you know. Uh, sure. Yes, he is in this. Uh, the film was a hit on release. Uh, Wikipedia says sleeper hit, but, you know, it was, it was kind of a big hit, uh, at least the year it came out. Um, ended up making a... Uh, I would say a whole boatload of money for a movie primarily about the Amish uh, would go on to be nominated for eight uh, Academy Awards, one, two, for <laughs> You know, a sleeper hit. You know, that sleeper, sleeper hit. hit that got nominated for eight Academy Awards. Maybe it was a slow burn. Maybe it was like a January, you know, who knows. Uh, but it won Best Original Screenplay and Best Film Editing. Uh, also... Uh, David Cronenberg was initially offered the role of director, but declined as he, and I quote, said, uh, could never be a fan of the Amish. That's <laughs> what? what I got. That's what he said. <laughs> that, is quoted. That, is, that's, <laughs> that is way funnier than what I thought you were going to say about David Cronenberg's uh, no. opinion of witness. No, that was almost my quote at the beginning, but I was like, ah, that's funnier <laughs> later on. In the, so. I also read on Wikipedia that it is one of Akira Kurosawa's favorite films, which is favorite funny because movies, it came yeah. out the same year as Ran, I believe. It was nominated at the same Academy Awards as, as sorry, Ron. Uh, I, I really hope everybody had a good time watching this because I was really, really pleased that we get, finally got to see it at the trial. I've loved this movie for a long time. 
Harrison Ford, of course, the, the, you know, following the Indiana Jones fandom and obsession that I had as a child, just sort of like his more, his less uh, pulpy roles started to, uh, I, I guess I started to eat those up in my teens and through college. Really, really, really love uh, Witness. I, it's almost tough to talk about in, in our usual terms uh, for me because it's, it relies so much on straight genre stuff, but just fills that with a lot of great character work, I think, especially in the middle act. But I'm really looking forward to hearing what the group thinks. Does anybody have a great entry point they want to go into, or is it just going to be me sort of gushing for a few minutes? I know, Harry, you like this movie quite a bit too, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, kind of like you, I'd seen this movie um, a couple of times, I think for the first time when I was pretty young. I remember um, me, my dad, my sister would go to the Blockbuster on weekends where we were with my dad and and rent a bunch of movies and and he would always be like sort of he would vaguely remember a movie and be like, I remember this one being really good. Let's go watch it. And sometimes uh, it was The Unforgiven, which opens with one of the worst sexual assault scenes I've ever seen. And Charlie was like six years old. Hmm. Uh, so sometimes it's a bit of a miss. But sometimes, as in this case, uh, it's a big hit. Because um, so I've been a, a real big fan of this movie for a long time. Um, I think it's sort of like of the like neo thrillers starring Harrison Ford of the eighties and nineties. I think it's my favorite, which is kind of um, controversial, I guess, but I think I do like it more than the fugitive. I don't know. I, take, I would agree. I would agree. Um, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I think that this movie is, is way more, I think I liked what you said about how it's sort of on its face, a genre thriller, but really a lot more than that. It's a lot more than the sum of its parts. And so much of uh, what makes it so much more is directorial and is built out of the acting. Um, there's just a, there's a real soulfulness and a real dignity to all of these characters. Um, I believe Roger Ebert, uh, credit where credit is due, he wrote a really, really good review of this movie where he said that like it's it's a Hitchcockian thriller, but it's a Hitchcockian thriller third. It's like first and foremost a movie by and for adults about people whose decisions and lives matter and who have like mutual respect for each other. And he found that very refreshing when he reviewed it back in 1985. I still find it refreshing. I think that the way that this movie approaches its characters, the care that it obviously has for them, it creates this relationship um, alongside Harrison Ford and um, the love interest uh, that is like really, I think, profound in, in a lot deeper than uh, you would think from another uh, story like this, particularly a thriller to the point where it's it's kind of more. Uh, a romance movie, a star-crossed lovers movie before it's a thriller. Um, but it's also a great thriller and it's also um, a really captivating character drama. So I think it it manages to do all of those things without losing the immediacy of any of those um, different attempts, right? Of those different sort of genre takes. And um, I think it just makes for a movie that is like absolutely captivating to watch, even though it's a real slow burn, right? Like I think that... In fact, like as Aaron noted, like the second act of this movie is largely concerned with John Book recovering slowly on an, in an Amish community, and it's it's kind of a huge um, boon to this movie, in my opinion. That I don't think it loses anything in that transition. I think like the second act is every bit as compelling as the first and third, um, and you know it's it's the kind of movie that I that I love revisiting. Yeah, um, I wish I could say the same only because this is my first time watching Witness, but uh, I also came away a big fan of this and I didn't really know what to go in expecting other than I knew, I, I think I wasn't aware of your mileage area. I knew Jason and Seth, a uh, friend of the 
pod, former guest, et cetera, um, that they had seen it and loved it. Um, I guess first and foremost, I also have a little bit of like dad history with this movie. Um, I, while watching, well, I guess I, I, the other thing I knew going in was that this, um, that witness was on a list of movies that, uh, my mom and dad had like watched together, um, presumably went to go see in theaters, uh, before I or my brother were born. And well, I, so I had that in the back of my mind while watching the movie, the phrase, um, you be careful out there among them English comes up. And that is a phrase that, Many a time had been uttered by my dad if I were like me or anybody else, like left the house to go out somewhere. I love that um, so much, Cody. It's so good. <laughs> and just like it's it's a handful of those moments where something crystallizes when I watch a movie uh, that again that I know my parents had seen independently or together. And so I texted him after the movie, and I just texted him that line, and he texted back uh, uh, the um, time for milking line. Funnily enough, just like because we'll do that, we're just like riff quotes <laughs> back to each other. Um, so that was super cool. Um, and another little like again, not that there was anything like missing in my brain or collective memory, but that was just a nice little thing that I, that I have going forward. Uh, on top of everything else that I like about this movie. Um, um, and Peter Weir having sort of the eclectic filmography that he does where I, I, I think I'm not going to be saying really anything new, but just on the surface, a lot of different like genre um, projects or like heightened genre works between something like Witness, something like Master and Commander or uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Truman Show, Dead Poet Society. But like really at the core, all of those are taking from a lot of different places and Witness does very much the same. Um, I, I felt a lot of glee well uh, glee is the only word that i can really use to describe it but while watching witness and kind of hitting those little guardrail moments of what like what this movie is going to be and what you know peter weir and friends are kind of you know telling us that you know this movie is going to be that you know your read of this is that it's it is going to be a uh, a police thriller steamy romance fish out of water story um without really leaning on any of those um particularly you know there's as soon as harrison ford shows up we get a nice little joke about there being a height difference between him and his partner just like little moments like that and sort of uh informing the experience um as we went and so the the term that you mentioned a couple times harry refreshing i definitely feel that as well uh i definitely felt refreshed watching this and seeing a movie like witness so willingly and earnestly kind of taking from a lot of different places while just kind of existing in its current form without like again using any one of those sort of um like sense of genre trappings as a as a crutch or, or anything else um so we still get you know this sort of synth score that um i was gonna say shouldn't work but does but i don't know it's something a, a score like that is always i don't know i we'll i like that a whole bunch it. yeah you, you, oh ooh, saucy no um, it's interesting i you know the guy who who wrote it wrote the fucking lawrence of arabia score mm -hmm. which is like pretty like unequivocally one of the greatest film scores ever written right mm -hmm. and it was like i it didn't super work for me at first and then charlie whom i was watching with made the point that it sounds like it's trying to be like electronic amish music which is really interesting <laughs> oh, it's sure. like kind of like organ or like old school so that kind of saved it for me but uh yeah it's it's very unusual for sure i think it's yeah Oh, sorry. Yeah, I didn't mean oh, no, no, please go. No, no, that was that was perfect. I, um, save us. I really do think that, like combining you guys' thoughts about the soundtrack and guardrail moments. I really like that you set it up that way, Cody, because only on rewatch could I and I've seen this movie a couple of times, but only like 
post first time watching, could I like think about, okay, this is what the movie ends up being and trying to listen for and look for what, uh, you know, sort of signposts it uses to put you in that space to like, okay, we're going to spend the first act in grimy Philly. Well, part, most of the first act in grimy Philly, there's a murderer setting up the thriller plot. And then second act is going to be this long patient character study. And then third act is going to get things pretty heated pretty quickly. Um, but I really liked that. And I'm glad you brought up the music too, because it like, I think that's one of the first ways and first like strongest ways that it foregrounds that i like the insinuation that it sounds like you know synth music trying to be amish because when we're most i guess i think the first like very first scene is the funeral right the funeral for um Jacob, i think uh rachel's ex-husband if i'm if i'm remembering that scene correctly uh and <laughs> well ex in that he's now deceased <laughs> they uh, were not divorced or broken once, up with, but yes you're husband. right technically that is a uh right <laughs> former, yeah, you could say late husband you could say former ex-husband. living husband uh where that scene like again we, we start among like the amish community in dutch i forget what town but you know that area of dutch pennsylvania um and we're given that like almost if there was a break in the music between then and when the murder occurs in the Philadelphia train station, I don't remember when it was because it's just so dreamy and atmospheric. Again, Maurice Shrive kind of like firing at all cylinders. I enjoyed it from the first get, but it really does, I think, take time for it to start to synthesize, no pun intended, with the rest of the with the rest of the movie. Um, I think it gets like it sets those guardrails through the soundtrack, through those very like patient shots. We get him like there. You would expect a movie like this to have those scenes where we have a young Amish boy sort of experiencing uh, modern, the modern conveniences of like, he like points at the hot air balloon out the window and they're also titillated by the, um, by the train going so fast and all this, you know, kind of stuff that should be, should feel somewhat sensationalized, but grounding us in that very first opening scene of death and community. And uh, we get like some ribald humor from a couple of the Amishmen. Uh, it's like really, really like humanizing stuff that sets the scenes incredibly well that sort of tells us, okay, we're going to spend a little bit of time with the sensational, with the, with the murder, with the um, threat of violence. And then we're going to sort of like calm back down into this more still fairly tense, but somewhat more uh, patient middle act. Um, I really love that it sets those guardrails from the very beginning. Like Cody was saying, Aaron, did any of this hit for you? Was this uh, like, was that necessary for you? Have you seen this before? Um, All those starter questions. Um, I had not seen this film before. Do not have the kind of long storied history with it. This was my first time watching it. Uh, I will say I am a fan of these kind of films, the the kind of, you know, grizzled uh, kind of inner city cop kind of traveling to to somewhere else and kind of um, maybe being kind of reborn a little bit through his interaction with kind of maybe small town, kind of more humble folk and whatnot. Um, I think Harrison Ford does a really, really good job. I think um, I think Kelly McGillis maybe does an even better job. She's um, amazing. In this there's movie. like a lot of really great parts of this film. I don't think I like this movie very much to be quite honest. And I can't uh, defend that statement in terms of like the movie being bad per se. Cause I think it's quite a good movie. I think that, that maybe a, a kind of soft way to put it is it is, I think pretty exactly not to my taste. Uh, and that I, 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 on paper, I, I kind of like everything here, but I find um, a lot of the fish out of water stuff and the way the romance is handled and even the kind of aesthetics of 80% of this movie kind of taking place on this Amish farm um, to be kind of pretty much <laughs> directly opposed to, to my interests um, 
I will say that if if there's one aspect of the film that I view as like, I don't know, like maybe worthy of like maybe a little bit of, of pointed criticism, I, I do think that this movie is like quite safe in a way that I think is and also like quite predictable in a way that I, I think maybe could. Again, it's not like necessarily bad and maybe that's a bit of the point, but I feel like pretty much every plot turn in this movie you can like guess from a mile away and anticipate i think the minute that Mm -hmm. uh joseph summer's character shows up you're like yes that is clearly if not the bad guy then then a bad guy uh i think you can tell that harrison ford's partner is is going to die like the minute they get involved with the conspiracy um even how most of the events would kind of play out later in the film with like the this amish community like having to like not fight back because they're distinctly not fighting back, but like how they, they interact with these uh, uh, kind of corrupt cops who kind of come to the town. I view that as like quite obvious and kind of simple to be quite honest in a way that, that I, I, I don't necessarily like hate it, but I, I uh, it, watching it was kind of rote to be yeah, quite honest. No, you're not um, wrong. And, and I think that there's like an aspect of this film to maybe like dial back on that. That is like, kind of viewing the like maybe like beautiful simplicity in those things right like i think that there is like a reading of this film or a way of watching this film in which like all of the amish people at the end like swarm around this police detective and he like you know kind of slowly realizes that he's he's done for in the face of these i mean overwhelming amounts of people witnesses yes i think there's like a way of like viewing that where like that is like a very like beautiful like kind of classic like almost I mean, biblical like story of like that this like violent kind of outsider being like faced with the, you know, the overwhelming uh, power of this community and whatnot. Um, I, I think that all that is true, um, but it it was just kind of a little simple. I didn't really find anything to grasp onto in this film that I, I really love. And so I don't know. I'm like. I'm kind of like, oh, maybe I'll be sold on some sort of depth here. But I think that it's mostly just kind of like aesthetic preferences more than anything for me. So I, I don't uh, I don't want to like shit on it. It's yeah, like, that makes sense. Movie, you know, um, to respond to your pointed criticism, which I don't entirely disagree with, except to say that, like, I really think that the dramatic stakes of this movie are maybe a little bit different. Um, I think that the things that are not clear about this movie and that remain sort of like up in the air, even maybe you could argue by the end, though. I agree. I think this movie is is pretty cut and dry and pretty optimistic. Um, it's first of all, what's going to happen to the boy? What's going to happen to Samuel? Like, what is he going to learn from these experiences that he's witnessing? And then, like, two, I think that honestly, probably the main dramatic stakes is like, what's going to happen between Harrison Ford and, and Kelly McGillis? Are they going to find a way to like? That's kind of like the, and again, maybe even that is rote, but like the sort of like. Wong Kar Wai or Hitchcockian like romantic tragic element of it is the idea that like these two people who are clearly like have a real connection can nonetheless not not be together but that doesn't mean that like their connection wasn't real that doesn't mean that like and I think that embodied through Samuel who sort of like learned to take not to be a little bit too sort of um optimistic about it but he kind of took the right things to take away from both the communities that he bore witness to right i think that like there's some sense in which like their union or their um connection is going to live on embodied through the values that they passed down and i i liked that and i found a lot um 
to to enjoy and a lot of complexity there, especially the way that this is like kind of a movie about parenthood and kind of the, a movie about um, like how we pass on values or like how we embody values. I think there's that really great scene um, where Samuel's talking to the elder of the Amish community about the gun and uh, the uh, Samuel, or he asks Samuel, like, how are you going to know these bad people? And Samuel responds, like, I will know them by what they do. And then the Amish guy says, like, what you take into your hand, you take into your heart. I like that Samuel ultimately is the one that kind of proves both John Book and the Amish community wrong by kind of like finding a way, another way, right? Like the way the Amish leader did. Um, but also like, I think that probably speaking of aesthetic preferences, first of all, I really like this movie aesthetically. And second of all, like I think Harrison Ford and Kelly McGinnis's romance is like so fucking fire in oh this movie God. that it like, I think that they have like top 10 sexual chemistry that I've seen in like a movie. And I they think, should have fucked. yeah, I think that makes think so? a lot of this work for me better. Right. It's just the fact that like from the very beginning, like they have this undeniable, like, charisma together that really makes like it really brings an edge to the conflict that I think wouldn't exist otherwise in this story on paper. Right. But just the, the way they look at each other, the way they interact with each other, um, the way that there's always this tension that's like riding the line between sort of like resentment and anger and uh, frustration it, it like is really, really potent stuff for me. And I, I think that like that's not only is that just sort of dynamite from a character's perspective, but I, I legitimately think that the tension that that undergrids their like romantic development is is thematically appropriate because I think that like it gets them to question the right parts of themselves. Right. Like they wouldn't unless they were so compelled by the other, the way they are in this situation, I don't think John book would go through the rebirth that he goes through in this movie. And I don't think she would have the moment where she is able to stand up to the Amish community that she had, uh, that she ends up standing up to. And I, I really like that perspective from this too. I really like the perspective of like, and again, I don't think it's subtle, right? Like I, there's a moment where the main bad guy says, Oh, we cops are kind of like the Amish. We're a cult too. And it's like, Oh, I get it. I get the themes of the movie, but like, I do kind of like the idea that like, there is, there is something here about like, but we, even, even in a situation where our beliefs are so entrenched and there are so much distance between us, like there are still these opportunities to create connections and these connections can even outlive the connection itself. They can build something. Right. Um, I think that's kind of what I really like about this. And, and I think that like that for me um, makes the movie sort of like edgy or unpredictable enough, even though I think I agree with Aaron that like on paper, I know all the plot beats as they're happening. Right. Like, especially the poor partner, uh, who is really shit on in this movie in a way that very few movie characters ever are. Uh, he's called short. He appears in like two other scenes. He dies off camera. Um, and like it, the, even the, the thriller plot is pretty thin, right? It's about basically three guys who are trying to get away with something. And at the end they don't. Um, I think that like, I think that works for me because there's so much else happening that almost subverts the, um, the progress of the plot as it were. Totally. Um, and I think, I guess without me speaking to any of that directly, hopefully I, I've, I've got enough here to speak kind of concurrently to all that, but I, I definitely can understand coming away from this and it, it just being like a stylistic mitch, mismatch of preferences that, especially with something like this, which is, um, 
I don't want to say kind of all over the place, but again, comes from a lot of different spaces. But one thing that I noticed while watching that it didn't derail anything for me, but it was definitely something I was more actively thinking about was the second half is more, for lack of a better term, like it felt more freeform. Like the approach, it was felt completely different, almost like economical, like these sorts of conversations that we were maybe having in the first half about, um, I guess specifically within the community, um, like they're, they're sort of, uh, a, a shortcut sounds backhanded, but like I, I genuinely loved it. The sequence where they're all coming together to build that barn. They're just, you know, we got a data to put this together. Just like ha- having, you know, almost like essentially a montage of Harrison Ford and, and this entire community, um, you know, putting together this, uh, this, uh, sorry, Detective Sergeant John book, excuse me. Um, he goes by the book, throw the book at him, et cetera. Um, just like seeing that come together, uh, that <laughs> not necessarily the most apt comparison, but it got me thinking about that, um, that stretch in, what was it? Andre Rublev, Aaron, where they're just like putting together an entire, what, like a globe or mural or just it's like, a, it's a bell, a bell. Yes. Thank you. Yes, um, it's a bell. Now that's it. That's a great comparison, actually. Wow. Please. Yeah. That's, no. And, and it's like an otherwise, you know, just like we're not quite not quite sure why this is here. It's not directly relevant, but it's also like the most relevant fucking thing you can do. You know what I mean? Um, so I I don't know. I got thinking about that and I, I, I got to understand, you know, it's it's you know, it's an economical sequence where we're getting everything out of, out of this, you know, the it cucked um, Amish. Uh, what did I say, Jason? Gary Busey was that? <laughs> like, yeah. Watching them sort of uh, kind of go tete a tete. Um, so just like again, a completely different approach than we would have gotten from the first one. The second half, also, we've been talking about it a lot more. Like some direct conversations between um between John Book and uh and Rachel. Uh, a lot of that, or at least the images that stick in my head. A lot of synth. A lot of um shot reverse shot these two just like staring soulful daggers into each other um and like again i i i still very much enjoyed that ride but i could definitely see how um first i don't know whether it's aaron or or anybody else watching this how that sort of that shift would land in a way that's not um necessarily uh like as feasible for their viewing experience um at predictability is not necessarily something that uh, i put like a lot of weight on while while watching but at the same time i was very much aware of something like the Chekhov's gun where he pulls out the gun describes it in great detail there are a lot of great conversations about um about guns uh, and they're Kind of various you know, representations. Uh, John Book has that conversation with um, with uh, little Samuel, and I definitely thought, you know, okay, they're setting it up for Samuel's going to blow these guys away at the end of the movies, where he like makes this choice and he's got a fucking. I think that's Samuel, what they want you to say. Samuel Black. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I legitimately, I think that I honestly think that that's what they wanted you to think the Act Three was going to be. Is like, oh, Sammy's going to have to shoot somebody, and he's going to like lose his soul in the process. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and all that is to say, like, again, that's not something that necessarily kind of derailed my reading of the ending or the third act or the final beats or, or what have you. But I, I think the fact that there was enough thrown at the wall and there was it was enough that I vibed with um, and some of us here vibed with where I was just kind of like, you know, wherever they land with this um, is, is, is good by me. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of sputtering at this point, but that's I, I, I think I, I get where you're coming from. Um, and yeah, all all's well that ends well, right, Aaron? That's that's what they say. The end. Yeah, I guess, I guess my the, it's kind of hard to like put into words, but there is like something like the Chekhov's gun thing that you mentioned is like kind of interesting because there's like yes, the kid doesn't end up like shooting the gun, right? But there's like a a bunch of that 
kind of stuff totally. in this movie. Stuff that's set up, like the the presence of a gun, which is like definitely hinted at, and like the presence of his car on the farm has like things that go against you know uh, the Amish faith and their kind of way of life and right not that are that are set up as um, if not like Chekhov's guns in terms of like going off and killing somebody, certainly Chekhov guns in terms of like kind of being paid off in some sort of thematic manner down the line. And I guess like my like main problem is there's like, there's something, I don't know what it is. Maybe I'll figure it out, but there's something about this movie like the more obvious like notes in this movie like that, that kind of stop it from feeling like a, like a good play, like a Chekhov uh, style thing where it feels like very solid, like carefully considered like thematic points being brought, being brought to their conclusion. Like that is what is happening in the film. But for some reason, I think that like that stuff here just kind of seems a bit obvious to me where like I could use, like there is a weird version of this movie that is absolutely more like, Andre Rublev or like Terrence Malick uh, style, uh, you know, Harrison Ford staring out at the cornfields for, for 40 minutes straight. Right. Um, and like, I don't think the film like needs to be that, but like it's distinctively like not doing that stuff, but then what it is doing, I find like maybe not as complex as I want. So like, but I don't know. I think maybe I'm just an asshole and <laughs> maybe like maybe i just need to appreciate something maybe a little more kind of heartfelt and obvious which is like the other thing is like I, the, the, this the the someone brought up the point about the kid should have blown, you know been blowing away the bad guys at the end and i think that like this is a very 1985 movie and that that is not what happened right like this is not chinatown the 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 point at the end of this movie is not that harrison ford as this external actor like wrecked this small fucking amish community and then he leaves to go do what he wants to um there is something like a little like kind of heartfelt and like optimistic despite how the relationship ends up like i don't know maybe i just wanted something it's, a little nastier yeah i think to harry's point i think it's exactly that. like it's less about them being together and it's more about what they've left each other with what they saw in each other right well i mean i and i think it is an optimistic movie and i i mean i think that's the big difference between 70s movies and 80s movies and i i don't oh, think yeah. that that's a bad point at all right but i mean like i think that the if I may be so bold, not necessarily what you're missing, but why this maybe works for me and doesn't work for you is I think I read as much nuance into the optimism of this movie as I would read into a cynicism, a cynical movie, even though I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you. Like I largely as listeners may know, prefer the, the films of the seventies to the films of the eighties. Yes. I, I think optimism is bullshit, uh, obviously, but I kind of like this earned optimism where like, there is this existential malaise or threat hanging over this movie that I found very compelling where there is this sort of sense that like, Hey, like, is anybody going to survive this really? Like, is anybody going to come out of this with like their values preserved with like anything worth salvaging from what they had? Uh, is Samuel going to like learn the right things? Is, is everybody, is anybody going to do the right thing? Right. I think that they sort of maintain that tension right up to the end when John book thrusts Samuel in front of the bad guy. And is like, what are you going to shoot him? And it's like, wait, what? And even his mom like cries out. And I think that like, I think that the optimism works for me because it's sort of fundamentally like this interesting pro-social, um, almost like anti-racist or anti-xenophobic point about like, hey, like we can have a little bit of faith in each other that we're going to be able to witness, no pun, in, well, pun intended, and um, 
sort of like uh gain the right understandings from what we see about each other, right? Like it, there is a world in which John book can go to an Amish community and come away a better person. And also maybe even make these Amish people a little bit more open-minded and a little bit better. Right. And it's like, there's something about that. Like, and I think that like the fact that this movie is about police corruption and the fact that this movie is also, though it's more subtle about like how regressive the Amish community is toward women. I mean, like, Note that uh, Kelly McGinnis's character, this dude is basically prowling around her husband's like uh, funeral and like wants to start macking on her like literally before his body's cold. And the rest of the Amish community kind of just sees it as a foregone conclusion, <laughs> which is kind of a big part of what attracts her to Harrison Ford uh, in a lot of ways. So like there is like a lot of tension there about like how like the idea that she should be attracted to an outsider is like to the Amish. That is something that is like um, an existential threat. Whereas to her, she's like, I'm a person <laughs> and she has that great standing up moment. So I really like the idea that, that like actually like not only is there something to be gained by the sort of like cross pollination of peoples and cultures, but actually like we can build something better. It's sort of like, like an optimistic version of the American melting pot ideal um, taken to its extreme. Um, that being said, I mean, like I I'm, I'm sympathetic to the idea that this movie is a little bit too um, optimistic. I think it can come off as saccharine maybe a little bit. I think personally, I think that's why they um, don't get together at the end. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, I also thought your Terrence Malick point was interesting because I thought a lot about Days of Heaven while watching this movie. Um, and one of my uh, gifs at the end of the movie is going to be just the, um, the like, what Charlie called the Miyazaki Ma moment, <laughs> where, like, there's, there's this, like, 30-second cut of just the wind blowing over grass in the Amish community at the very beginning of the movie. Um, I think that, like, that soulfulness and it's it's kind of hard to describe, right? But it lives in sort of like the the gestures and the expressions. There are a lot of scenes in this movie that are just, um, including one unbelievable scene where Harrison Ford basically peeps on Kelly McGinnis when she's bathing, and she just turns around and bare chest faces him, and they just stare at each other. And it's like, man, like that kind of shit is like really what I want out of this movie. That that just sort of electricity. I, I want to see Kelly McGillis topless. Is what I'm saying. That's what I want out of this movie and all movies, frankly. I, I just a quick comment on that. I found it very fun that um, the poster for this film, at least on Letterboxd, I'm pretty sure, like it's it's him in it's Harrison Ford in his uh, like detective outfit, suit and tie and stuff. I'm pretty sure that they base the face on the face that he gives that just like deer in the headlights look when he sees kelly mcgillis topless that one time i'm pretty sure that the poster is just that face because he does not make that face for any sustained length of time anywhere else in the movie except that scene um i i, I wanted to move toward i know aaron you had your hand up just a second ago i wanted to move toward a discussion of the ending unless there are any quick thoughts yonder uh then the end is i think what brings it home for me a lot of the concepts that uh specifically harry and cody were bringing up i think Aaron, for a lot of what you've been saying, I think it's primarily just like aesthetics. I think that this with different, uh, maybe looking or sounding different, a lot of the story pieces would probably ring a little better. I think the sentimentality isn't overpowering in this movie, generally, like at its core. I think it is like it relies on it. But anyway, uh, the ending, um, 
particularly, I think, is all of this, the concept of, and Harry brought it up, I referenced it once, the concept of like the two characters, Rachel and John, being together isn't really the point of their whole interaction of their relationship. Uh, the fact, again, Aaron, they, they should have fucked. Sure, movies, they should have fucked. But um, the fact that they don't is, I think, like it, it enriches the, 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 the relationship a bit because they're instead of like taking each other with each other, they're sort of taking what they've learned about each other, about like their respective worlds and communities. I'm not saying anything new or anything that's not also, on the page I mean, there, right? I gotta, I gotta be this guy and I apologize, but like sometimes movies are sexier when they don't fuck. No fucking I, happens in in the mood for love. Nothing you, happens. Hmm, That's the sexiest movie ever made. Too. No, I mean, of course they should. That's the yeah. point: is that you want yeah. it. Yeah, the point is that you want it. The and, point is and by restraint. not receiving it, you get to keep wanting. That's the real yearning. You always want. I always want to see Tony Leung and uh, Maggie cut. Chung fucking. Right? I just like, want to see Tony Lung's little lung. You know, his little Tony. Uh, well, no, he's oh, already little Tony, isn't he? Is it little Tony? Big Tony? They call they call each other because there's there are two Tony Lungs, right? I think. Anyway, my yeah. point being, I don't know. You you the, stumbled into this conversation. I, re- I really <laughs> did. Just like I hit the curb and kept going. Um, uh, Harry, you you set it up perfectly. Like what you don't get sort of makes it the end. I found it really interesting in an interview from 1998, almost a decade after this movie released. Peter Weir talked about uh, the original script for the ending, like the screenplay. Funny enough, it one of the awards it got was screenplay, and it's like partially at least due to Peter Weir because. And I'll read this quote: Originally, there were two pages of uh, of dialogue in which Harrison Ford explained why he was leaving the community, and she gave her feelings to him, Rachel. Uh, the excuse me, it was very literal. And I cut it all because we don't need it. He says, and the producers, the producers asked him to like, they said, we have to know what they're feeling. The audiences aren't going to know what's going on. And he says, like, if I I knew that if I'd done my job properly, you would know exactly how they were feeling by the time it was cut together. They just look at each other. It's hopeless. It's beyond words. And it's like, yeah, fucking exactly. Can you imagine a version of this ending, a version of this movie where they say more words to each other? Yeah. Well, and that, that symmetrical tragedy, right? This idea that, like, of course he has to leave because yeah. the audience would have. It's like Pretty in Pink, right? Where there's sort of a like, um, you don't want her to end up with anybody. Uh, it's it's like if if Harrison Ford had stayed, if John Book had stayed, we would have felt like we'd lost something essential about who John Book was. He would be losing his soul, right? Whereas yeah. the, the same would be true if Rachel Lapp left. Like they have to maintain who they are mm-hmm. because that is what they see and admire about each he's, other. He's, but he's that a- means that they can't be together exactly. He says it where if we had like, it's a bit on the nose, obviously, again, maybe to Heron's point, but like it is, he says, if, if we had slept together that night that he sees her, he says uh, made there, love, Jason, if John they Book made, is a if we made, he is a man, he is a gentleman. If they made love, she would have to leave or he would have to stay. And there's just a recognition that there's something Im- immutably like tied to their worlds that they have that one of the ways that like one of the like it's just a dagger further you love the feeling but it's just a dagger further at the very end is instead of saying any words they look at each other they have this really like charged moment and you can see in their faces and i love this moment every time i watch the movie that they like get back into character a little bit like she becomes more of a traditional like i i I don't even know how to describe it it's just literally like the phenomenon of facial acting but they sort of like move back to their like he moves to a slightly more stony face like a look, they share a smile, uh, and then they go back to like their so he's going back to Detective to Sergeant General, whatever, John Book. She's going to Rachel Lepp, and they are no longer these like forces of nature that uh, you know, are sort of like combating uh the the thickly drawn lines between worlds. They're just becoming the people that they are 
as they depart and leave. They have to be, right? They it's, have to return exactly. to Exactly. It, it feels, and it's just because it feels so natural in that last moment. I'm speaking from like a position of just seeing what I'm seeing on the screen instead of reading anything more in, uh, which is not usually my take. I try to go a little bit higher minded than that, but I really can't get enough of just that after all that they've done, after all that they've seen, after all that they've experienced together, after this incredibly traumatic thing has brought them together and now it's dashing them both apart, that that is the moment that we're left with is you know, of the very literally one of the ending shots is them not saying anything, not acknowledging verbally any of their, you know, history or any of their potential future, but recognizing again, as Peter Weir himself said, it's hopeless. It's like, uh, they just look at each other. It's hopeless. It's beyond words. Unbelievable. I, th- I think it's just such a strong ending. It relies so much on the strengths of the movie rather than like, again, eighties genre film stuff for them to say like, you know, I really love to still be here, but you've, you know, what's, what's his name? Uh, blonde Gary Busey has to, you know, he's already got your hand in marriage. Essentially. They don't rely on that. They go something a little bit more, a little, a lot smoother, a lot more natural, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I just, I think I, I find again, because the, the movie had treated the characters with such dignity and, and respect, which is kind of a strange word, I guess, because they're just characters ultimately. And because the Amish people hated this movie, obviously, mm-hmm. but like, I found that this movie had a lot of like a great deal of like, it really takes people for who they are and tries to sort of like depict their belief systems as something that is like, that is like true and worthy of being sort of like respected. Um, and I really like that, that element at the end where it's like, well, like it, this isn't a movie about one of these two characters dominating the other. This isn't a movie about one character being right and coming to see uh, from the other point of the other's point of view. This is about like two people who have an encounter who mm-hmm. have a connection and take something away from that that makes both of them better, but they maintain who they are, right? And like, I think especially through the vector of Samuel, Samuel being somebody who is going to be forever changed by this experience, but not necessarily in the way either of those characters wanted him to be, but in this sort of third way um, that is that is more speaking to what he learned from the both of them. I think that there's, there's just something really like, I think that there's something really fundamental about the... Um, the way that like, or fundamentally true, I guess I should say about the way that relationships work in this movie and the way that like we are changed by each other. Uh, that is both sort of like really sad and poignant and uh, optimistic, right? Because it's like you do like, that is the, that's the great point of this ending, right? Is that it is hopeless. Like you do want something to be different. You want them to be better or are to be um, together or something. You want them to have fucked, you know? I mean, maybe I just love cinematic blue balling, um, but I, I legitimately think there's something like super romantic and um, true and and poignant about the fact that like these people can be so changed by each other, but not enough that they can be together, right? Not enough that they will uh, find that kind of common ground because that common kind of common ground would ultimately betray who they are to each other, right? And mm-hmm. I think that there's something really great there about that. I think. And this is the most baby assed brain thing, but the very beginning of this movie, again, knowing where it goes and rewatching it at the trial on this time, the very, I think it might literally be the opening shot of it's, it's, I think it might've been that uh, Miyazaki shot you were talking about with the wheat sort of like waving in the wind for a long time and the sky above it. There's like a very, 
there's something resonant about the symbology of the wheat and it's very thick and it's like near near the ground it's uh opaque it's just green and brown and then toward the top of the sky again the horizon the, i haven't seen the fablemans but feel free to insert that in your mind if you'd like but the horizon is sort of cut by um like sort of a, a more translucent like the waving the billowing cattails the fronds of the wheat like that sort of great that space in which they've the two characters i guess have been allowed to affect and impact each other without essentially changing maybe who they are or where they belong. Like the sky is still the sky, the wheat is still the wheat, but there's this area where they can sort of interact, where they can change, where they can feed one another, where they can be changed by one another. I really, really love all the pieces of this movie that are foregrounded at the end and then like repeated, reflected and echoed at the very end. Um, it just fe- reads like a very, I was calling it like old Hollywood in ways, uh, despite being in the eighties, despite being part of like a thriller genre, only maybe 15, 20 years old by this point, this, this genre generally, um, and definitely as like a point of market, uh, appeal definitely hit its stride in the eighties. I just think it's a very well put together package, uh, obviously put together, like, acting and directing and the music and the cinematography and stuff just like a murderer's row of people who know their craft super well and i think that that is why for some people it doesn't hit i mean i was just going by contemporary reviews and letterboxed but for some people it doesn't hit that like oh it's a really cool it's a harrison ford thriller in the first act and then we sort of spend some time on a boring amish farm with cows and shit and then toward the end it gets to be a thriller again and i see how like the the shifting tone doesn't really land for everybody for me exactly what makes this movie so special is that it has all those things and doesn't commit totally to the thriller part of it in favor of something much more unique much more rich i think maybe this is just another personal sensibility thing and this is almost a junk drawer thought so i apologize but i also just love a movie where a character the main character especially uh a harrison ford character gets humbled I love mm. movies about being humbled and sort of like rebirth, like you said, Aaron, where like John Book really gets his ass kicked a lot in this movie. He gets shot. He falls or he passes out at the wheel and knocks over a birdhouse. He's sort of made fun of by all the Amish. I really enjoyed that sort of like uh, like reconfiguring storyline where it's like this guy who's kind of an arrogant prick. He like learns that he's not hot shit right in this movie. And I, I really like that specifically about this movie in, in how it takes that character to task. I think it's just a really relatable, cool um, character arc. I uh, won't read what I've left in the chat, but uh, I will open up the the thought, excuse me, the, the, the door one last time before we open the drawer, so to speak, about uh, final thoughts of the movie. Uh, anything that comes before junk drawer thoughts, any final discussion points, we're reaching about the hour mark, and I would happily... Uh, entertain any final oh, thoughts. So I'm just getting caught up on the chat here. Jason Daphnis a few moments ago uh, said Harrison Ford, the white Jackie Chan. Sorry, let me let me let me let me let me make sure. Keaton. Let me make sure. Let me make sure. Yeah, of oh, that's a good point. It's Buster Keaton. <laughs> the drunk door is formally open, and I will hear the question. Um, I I I don't know. I just I was I was hearing what Aaron, what Harry was saying about like a man who gets humbled. He's still like very likable. He's still very much the hero, the protagonist. But he gets humbled. He gets his ass whipped a little bit. He get like the, part of the story relies on him being undercut and his sort of like inner city bravado. Yeah, being that, that scene where they're at the diner and uh, Kelly McGillis is just fucking like ripping him to shreds. It's wonderful. Being like yeah, your sister told me that you think you're right all the time. 
your sister told me that you're kind of an arrogant asshole. Your sister told me this and that. Your sister told me that you like to be a policeman because you think you're always right about everything. Mm-hmm. It was like, it's so fucking good, dude. Like, give me like an hour of that. Like, this is just maybe like the anime dude jumping out in me. But it, but it's like, I love to see like a, like the female protagonist just like rip the male protagonist to shreds. You, just, <laughs> you love to see that shit, you know? It's so good. You absolutely do. Speaking of getting humbled, and I guess this is addressed to Jason specifically, during our screening, am I crazy or was somebody getting shushed in like the yeah. early half of that? Yeah, I, f- I forget what exactly what it was, but somebody, I think somebody had like a bag of treats or something. I, I, I remember hearing sure. like a plastic crinkle and then a shh. And I was like, during this movie, I didn't Yo. hear anything. I, I it happened be- like five times. Oh, also, did it? That's, that's more than I noticed. Maybe yeah. I'm drawing a line, line in the sand here and like maybe you don't do it during really quiet scenes, but like. I don't know that you can shush somebody for a snack. Yeah. No, no. Well, that's yeah, not, here's the th- that's not here's, cool. here's the thing. You, two things. The movie theater industry yeah. is founded upon concession sales. Like yep. you're not going to you're not going to win that battle. It's just never going to happen. But two, word to the wise and, you know, we don't really we're mm-hmm. we're inferring here. We don't know the specifics of what was happening Friday night uh, during our particular screening. I, I guess I've already narrowed it down pretty well, so I'll, I'll leave, <laughs> it, leave it at that. Um, but if you again, speaking broadly, if you are the one shushing, you automatically become the theater enemy. Yeah. In that situation, because I like I couldn't hear the bag crinkling. I couldn't hear anybody saying anything. Well, yeah. But the, sh- the shush always rings out louder. Yeah, yeah. The shush always rings louder. You got to pick your battles. Um, I mean, be, be courteous, but it, like the shush is, is never so many times up. to shush, too. I, I did not notice that they did it that many times. As, as, a, as a person going to a theater, you are engaging in a communal experience. All right. Yeah. You're free to go rent the movie Witness at home. If you would like to not have people eating snacks around you, but if you go to a theater, someone's going to be eating popcorn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, right? I mean, absolutely. My, now, within my sort of within rule of ex- thumb, acceptable, you know, boundaries. Of I'm course, going to put right? both Somebody of my butt cheeks cr- out and start farting into the air next movie I, mean, I see with the, you in public. Here, listen, the the my rule of thumb is that if I can hear distinct conversations happening around me during, like if I can make out like full conversations, like not even just a word here or there, but like if, if people in the theater that I like, I'm hearing them commentating on the movie, that's, that's over the line for me. I'm going to mark that zero, but anything else, I mean like crinkling of bags, like scattered comments and conversation, you know, that's just part of the experience. IMO. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I am trying yeah. to. I'm leaving the door open for uh, when we almost had to get into a fight during the Godzilla screening. You know, that's um, what I thought of when I heard when yeah. I heard the insinuation that being the shusher is the one who get, like you become the enemy of hey, look, the theater. I tried not to. Right? I tried not, not always. But like, right. if, if somebody's like doing their own like riff tracks, yeah, over that's too the much. Movie, like, get them. Get yeah. yeah. No, Here's the the thing about the shush is that the shush has such. Such a, I hate to, especially as somebody freshly off of Twitter, I hate to say this, but it has such a Karen energy to it, where it's like every time someone yeah. has been talking and someone has has told them to be quiet and they the person telling them to be quiet has been correct, it's always been, shut the fuck up! Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> no, that's exactly the right <laughs> yeah. move, right? You never yeah. shush, you go, hey, shut, shut the fuck up! Shut up! <laughs> yeah. Fucking movie! That's it, and then it's like... Like New York you, uh, social rules apply in the movie. Theater, have, have you, you know, have you right. seen, no, that's a hundred percent the right take. From, yeah, from, absolutely, from the Force Awakens premiere. <laughs> have you seen that video where everybody's like sort of generally talking during no. the opening <laughs> scrawl, but then somebody like in the break before the blast, <laughs> somebody oh, just screams yeah. like, "Shut the fuck up, you idiot!" And then. <laughs> <laughs> 
incredible. And, 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 and apologies. I literally did mean if you are like actually verbatim, literally shushing because the specific, uh-huh. like the shh is something yeah, that will just upsetting. like sink it's to like the nails on the yeah. You are right. You are right. Yeah. Like, like honestly, shut the saying shut the fuck up is going to like probably mm. ring in a lower octave in most eardrums <laughs> than, a, than a shh. <laughs> like that's just, oh, it I, sucks so much. I, I will, I will bring back up the positivity of the in theater experience for a moment because the, seeing this with a crowd, uh, shushes or no shushes was actually quite a treat. Um, I've only ever watched it at home previously and it was everybody laughed at the right parts. Everybody cheered. Like when he says it's my way after I forget the guy's name, but the one of the village elders, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the town square when the, those, uh, Eli, bros, perhaps is it Eli? Uh, when those bros are sort of like harassing the, um, Amishmen as they're trying to get through town and Eli says like, don't attack them. It's not our way. And Harrison Ford, like he does the Popeye thing, pulls up his sleeves and he says, it's my way. Everybody, it's so good, everybody dude. lost their minds. <laughs> it was probably 80 people in there. It was a wonderful in also, theater experience. I, I think I've said this re- like uh, in the past about Blade Runner. This might be one of my favorite strategic deployments of Harrison Ford. Really good. He really is good. so good at playing this type of character. The guy who is just like a bit of a tight ass and also is like is like a little bit out of it in in terms of like social decorum or awareness and it's just sort of like a little bit too sort of like i mean basically grumpy right because he was a grumpy old man even before he was really a grumpy old man but like man he's so good at that and like charlie charlie was saying like harrison ford like slowly smiling or slowly smirking as he like figures out a joke or something is like one of the great treasures of American cinema. It's it like really, the man has a yeah. smirk like nobody else. And I love that. Like this is such a character who like so much would be lost if this was played by literally anybody, but Harrison Ford, yeah. like he, he embodies that perfect sort of like angst or just sort of like, like almost like uh relatable because he's so hot, but, but mostly just sort of like, um, he, he's such a shaggy dog, right? Mm-hmm, it, it's mm-hmm. like he wants to do the right thing, but he's sort of such a boy scout and he's also just a little bit in over his head. And yeah, I just, it's just wonderful. It is. Um, it is. Um, what was the Sam cook scene like, uh, in the theater, by the way, when they're dancing to don't know much about history dead, or dead quiet. Uh, yeah, wonderful world. It's, got, it's gotta be. Oh yeah. That's the name of the song. What, what a wonderful world. What a wonderful world. No, I know that's, the, that's, that's the, no, what that's a the wonderful other one. world. Uh, it's just wonderful world. <laughs> I, you're, oh, yeah. We're getting all screwed up. Too, too yeah, much, no, too much soulful music I, in this world. Uh, it was, it was, was singing the right song. Well, it right, was, whatever. it was good. It was really good. Um, uh, it, I think it played. Everybody seemed uh, to be at rapt attention. Um, yeah, there've been many it, times. Steamy as fuck. It's many so a time rough. in in louder scenes when I've heard people snoring at the trilon. Uh, based on like, I mean, this that scene comes in at what like an hour twenty and or something like that into the movie. It's, so you could see yeah. people show. You could. I, I want to. It's like an hour and fifty two minute long movie. I want to say that's roughly at least. That's exactly correct. Whoa, thank you. Um, I do yeah. want to, uh, backing up a little bit to the uh, sort of Harrison Ford's role in this, just for a quick moment, plug to uh, John Blair's piece for Perisphere is about exactly this, about the power of star power and Harrison Ford's particular brand of it, both deployed in Witness and The Mosquito Coast, another Peter Weir film tr- playing at the trial and check it out. Uh, but that's just my quick plug. Um, that wasn't another point. Aaron, did you have another thing to bring up regarding Harrison Ford or that <laughs> Sim Cook oh, scene? Just the Sam Cook scene. Is that that version of the song sounded off for some, like, I don't, there was, it, it's clearly the Sam Cooke version, but like Sam Cooke's like vocals sound like there was something like think, off about that version. I tried Googling around it. I could not find. I think it was, it, the it was club like remix. 
Okay, yeah, it was Chainsmokers had a hand on it. Chainsmokers remake. Avicii got his hand on Sam Cooke. Harrison Ford Ford teaches her to to really uh, get down in the club. Man, it was super funny because Charlie's definitely heard that song before, but I I think that she had forgotten about it, and she was like, why the hell does he say science book? (laughs) It was like the lyric that really bothered She was like, he he just named like four different kinds of math. He named biology. Why why couldn't they say like chemistry? Why did they have to say science book and then it keeps coming back it's like the character's the, name is book there's the I had background a friend in college who had that same critique of the song and always hated it and i we would always get into arguments because <laughs> well, I mean, it's a beautiful fucking song. amazing song it's of course incredible. it is yeah but but that one line is pretty funny and i was like i guess it's just yeah. because the uh like it was the right number of syllables i mm-hmm, guess but mm-hmm. um speaking of star power uh, it must be said, Danny Glover's surprisingly small role in this movie for being one of the primary antagonists makes such a meal out of it. Holy shit, is he so good in every scene he's in. There's this moment when he, because like his whole idea is that he is like, he is this corrupt cop who like feels like he's untouchable so he has this like real arrogance and this real swagger about him like right after he murders the dude in the bathroom he washes his hands and he makes a point of taking his time to wash his hands which is wild uh there's this one scene where um he has figured out that book is onto him and he just like comes at book in a parking garage to kill him but the way he does it he just like fucking strides at him like he makes sure john book can see him coming and he's walking like almost almost in slow motion and he looks so fucking cool and it was like man danny glover's so great uh he does get blown away by a shotgun at the end which is also pretty cool pretty not bad. as cool not the cool death in this movie actually the cool death in this movie is definitely the uh corn funeral yes a <laughs> corn burial a, excuse a, me. a mad shout out to uh the, the publicizing the dangers of corn entrapment grain entrapment of any kind uh typically it happens from above where you hit an air pocket and you start to sink this is an equally terrible way to die and my god this movie makes it look like the worst way to yeah. die. like i would rather he's like fucking drown choking 20, and, and he can't get up <laughs> it's like you're going to see every grain choking you all the way down and we're just going to show him just also from the i just corn i just dust. love that this this pretty like relatively subtle if if straightforward uh dignified movie that also for a second is just like yo what's the most fucked up way we can kill somebody on an amish farm <laughs> And then they're like, you can tell the writers just put their heads together. And they were like, yo, what about the grain side? The <laughs> that's a shit side ton of corn that, now. That's so much corn. That would so fucking suck to be killed by. And they were like, we got to put that in the movie. <laughs> and Peter Weir's like, you know what? I cut out your entire ending monologue, but, uh, but we're keeping this, this one. A little treat. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, are there any final juncture thoughts before we get to our penultimate segment about visuals? Going once, going twice. We have closed a the junk drawer and we're opening up the drawer of good grief give me a gif it's uh the section about visuals of the movie and what we want to put out next to the episode tweet um cody i'll ask for yours first you saw it in the theater with me so we saw the exact same pixels on the exact same screen at the exact same time what do you think should go out as the episode gif for this episode wow yeah we both had the exact same experience uh subjectivity is made up Dear listener, overrated myth. Um, Holy shit, it's Leo Tolstoy in the chat. It's a little <laughs> weird, weirdly deep literary joke, but uh, it's fine. 
uh, hey, you know what? We'll scoot past it because we're talking about Witness. Uh, the uh, what? The, I guess one of the things that we've been talking about most recently, the sort of exchanging of glances between uh, Detective or Detective Sergeant Corporal Lieutenant John Book uh, and Rachel Lapp at the end of the movie. I think just the exchanging of glances, that's uh, an image that I've thought about a lot, uh, a lot the last couple of days um, and would love for that to be considered um, because uh, they're couple of hot people looking at each other and it means a lot within the scope of the movie so not much more reason needed than that uh, but the other uh submission i'll put forth is it's towards the beginning it's just uh what do you call it a buggy sitting at a stoplight um while traffic and modernity is happening there's a like i think a mcdonald's in the background if if i have that right um re- just like a really it's like the buggy is static and everything else is moving I don't know how well that'll look in, in GIF form, but I liked that image a whole lot. A lot of great images in this movie, but those are the couple that I am uh, circul- circulating around in my noggin the most. So take mm-hmm. those and do with them what you will. Take please. these gifts and shove them. That was going to be uh, close to one of mine. There's a shot near the beginning where the buggy is sort of like holding up traffic and you see a big semi truck slow down and then you see a car behind it slow down and then a car behind that slow down until the whole frame is filled with traffic. Good shot. Uh, kind of a, a, a gag a little bit, but I think very well framed and, and well, holy shit. Give me a shot. Holy shit. Give me a gig gift. Um, I, I, that, that was my first one. Also Samuel staring at, I think it's a, I don't know which angel that is, but an angel carrying a body. I'm presuming an angel of God holding the son of God, that Jesus guy, um, book. Uh, there's also, I would like almost any shot of the barn racing scene. That's just like the most fuck. Yeah. Scene I've seen in a movie from 1980. Well, that's a lot. I've seen a lot of movies from 1985 for this podcast. Um, and then at the end, Danny Glover just get, getting fucking shredded like Swiss cheese by that shotgun and just wiping against the wall and letting loose another shot on his way down. Wonderful, beautiful shot. Um, those are my gifts for this episode. Uh, Aaron, you got any ideas? What you want to see? Want to see his uh, episode gift? Yeah, it's the it's the car full of crooked cops cresting over the hill as they approach the Amish town, and then seeing the Amish village, and then slowly driving in reverse, doing like a doing like a little peek. And then, like, a big laugh thing. It did get a laugh. I don't think it's intentionally funny. It's supposed to be, like, ominous, but it is so fucking funny, man. I, it's so good. Like, yeah, yeah, very, very good. Yes, quite like a little frog, like peeking over a leaf and then, like, settling back. Seeing, seeing the, the beast that it, the, the fly that it's about to kill and then going back under the water. Yeah, this is one where it was kind of obvious. Like, I think that the long take of just the barn raising, there's one single shot that's like 30 seconds of the barn coming up. I think that's probably going to make for a really good gif. Um, I really like when um, Danny Glover is checking the uh, stalls in the bathroom and Samuel ducks under one. And then at the last minute, he has to go grab his hat uh, to get it out of the stall so that Danny Glover doesn't know that he was there. I think there's a really good exchange there that would make for a good gif for um, being, for being an Amish kid. He certainly has seen Indiana Jones, uh, and the temple of yeah, Doom quite a few times. Samuel's got fucking moves in this movie. I was so yeah. impressed by that. Uh, I wouldn't have thought to do that shit. Um, he even stands on the toilet, which to be fair, I would have known to do because I've seen a bunch of movies like this where that's the thing you do. But otherwise, um, I already mentioned the grass. Um, I already mentioned uh, Kelly McGillis topless looking at Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford looking back at her. That would be a good GIF. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. It would be a good GIF. Then um, we would have three of uh, four members of this podcast who have been permanently kicked off of Twitter, I think, <laughs> if I were to put that one out. Uh, Those are my GIFs, and I'm sticking to them. Uh, it's on the official record as one that Harry wants to see. Thank you so much for your suggestions. This has been... 
Good grief. Give Sorry I'm not afraid of the body. All right, Jason? <clears throat> Sorry uh, I'm not afraid of the human body. <clears throat> He's not afraid of the body, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we have one final segment, actually, and so glad to have it back after a prolonged period of absence. Uh, we and Actually, I f- almost forgot that I need Harry to introduce it with me. It's been a minute, huh? It has, hasn't this it? This is the segment we like to call... <gasps> Cody's Noties. Oh, it feels so good to sing again. Mm. Wow. Thank you, gentlemen. That introduction, much like a good carpenter, makes for great wood. Uh, so I've been away for a while, uh, and a lot has happened in the month of August. Uh, so I think it would benefit all of us, me especially, uh, if we went back and examined some of these noteworthy occurrences. And thus, to these events, we will be <clears throat> bearing witness. Uh, I will present each uh, noteworthy news event one at a time, along with an accompanying prompt. I uh, I debuted a, a spinner app many weeks ago, but quickly stashed it because um, th- we only had three of us on at a time and it just didn't make any sense to do it with two people. So I'm going to bust that out here and use that to determine the order for each question. You can kind of see here. I'll just do a little and make sure that works. This is just for um, for the pod fellas. See it. So okay, it's, it's okay. working. Wait on Aaron um, this time. Yeah, that, that test... That test spin landed on oh, Aaron. That's that not going to count. That was a, that was a test spin. Come on, um, just to to make sure what that my phone wasn't broke. Spinner app. Okay. Yeah, kind of. No. Yeah, kind of. Okay. Um, just because you never know. I I don't I don't want anybody coming at me. Um, you know, we're we're losing uh co-hosts on Twitter and probably listeners on Twitter by uh by the minute. And so you know, but there's still going to be people in my mentions being like the noties are rigged. The spinner app is broken. It's just a, a gif that you're throwing that always lands on Harry or something like that. So. Had to test it. Um, so we'll use that. Uh, you get a point for where, where was I? You'll get a point for every correct answer closest to the correct answer. And the person with the most points at the end will win. As always, trivia mafia rules apply here. So use your noodles, not your Googles. Let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, the one final quick note, the, uh, the events presented in these questions took place during the stretch in August when I was not on the podcast, uh, but they d- uh, did not take place in the year 2023. So question one, on August 17th, 1945, English author George Orwell published the anti-utopian classic novel Animal Farm. Question for you, how tall was George Orwell? And I'll go ahead, spin the wheel here, and we see that it lands on Jason. Very narrowly, I might say. Very narrowly landed on Jason. I think I just edged him out a little bit. I'm going to say he was, I don't know, the average male height is what, 5'11"? I'm going to say 5'11". Jason is going with 511 very diplomatically. Thank you for that. Go ahead and spin the app. See who we got next. Looks like we got Harry. Harry, you are not on the clock. What's your guess? It's a pretty tough one. Um, I could see Orwell being kind of tall, but also he wrote 1984, and and 1984's protagonist is maybe the most obvious little freak written character in history. Uh, That dude is like, had to have been written by a short guy, so I'm sticking to it. I'm going with uh, 5'9". Harry is going with 5-9, and no need to spin the wheel for this last one. Aaron, you were the one remainder. So what is your guess for George Orwell's height? 5-9's not that short, right? 5 nine. I don't think so. Respectable? Yeah, I, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say that uh, I, I do agree about uh, him having maybe short energy, but I do think that if we consider the nutritional changes in the average American's diet over the last uh, uh, almost century or so, the average is probably gone up, I guess. So I, I'm going to say five, six. Jesus. Aaron is going yeah. five, six. Thank you for your guesses. Gentlemen, going off a few sources on the internet, Orwell was allegedly 
six foot two certified case of should have been hooping. Damn. Yeah. Orwell, I don't know if he had hopped. Especially but back then. If yeah, you want to imagine the future, He should have been imagine. shooting. He should have yeah. joined up. <laughs> imagine a man dunking on the human face forever. Or like... <laughs> Uh, woof. So Jason was technically closest. Uh, so point to Jason. Uh, we'll move along here. Uh, still very much any anybody's game. We've got five questions. Question two. On August 20th, 1920, the National Football League was formed as the American Professional Football Conference. For those of us here in Minnesota, the Vikings is our home mascot, their home team. In what year did the Minnesota Vikings football team come into existence? And I got to spin the wheel. Come on, So man. spin, 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 spin. We're, We're all big Minnesota. football fans here. Uh, and look at that. Uh, Jason is, is um, up first. So Jason, when did the Vikings I'm become a thing? I'm in both the ways. Team? I'm going to say 1938. I have no information or no leaning or no knowledge. Literally just a number. 1938. Gotcha. Roger Dodger. Marked you down. Etched in concrete, etc. Moving along to the next person who is going to be... Dang, looks like we got Harry again. Uh, same order. Maybe this app is broken. Uh, or maybe it's just a small sample size. I was a former stats major. Harry, what's your guess? Um, 1959. 1959. Got you down. And Aaron, down to you. What? Uh, when did you think the Vikings became a, a foosball team? I'm, I'm going to unfortunately cheap it and go 1960. Um, Fucking so I, 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 I can't tell. I, I That's have fair. no clue. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I was I, I wanted no. I, hey, fuck I wanted, the NFL. That's so, the thing. Oh, sure. I I, I picked this, this question. NFL, you see, I, I picked this event <laughs> because I wanted to take a more like um, edgy approach, which is like, hey, football was a thing. Um, like, what percentage of former football players come out of the sport with like debilitating brain damage? Uh, and then I just I ran out of steam, and it just got to be too sad. So I was like, when did okay, As- when did the Vikings become a football team? Sure. As, as members of this podcast, we do have a, a fuck the NFL and really any organization that kind of enables like abuse like that. Yeah. Well, I say any we get back to analyzing baby. Hollywood films. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a better joke than yeah. mine. Yeah. Let's continue. Yeah. Uh, continue. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 for sure. Um, we have fun uh, selectively. The Vikings' year of origin was evidently 1961. So Aaron gamified that. Son of a uh, bitch. Made, made his way to a point. Um, so I'm not going to lie. My Aaron's guess was going to be 62 before Harry guessed 59. And then at that point, I was like, I'll just go 60. Swear to God. Swear to God. Nobody cares, Aaron. You already got the point. Why don't you shut up? Huh? How about that? How about that, Aaron? How about you shut up? Wow, Aaron, or excuse me, Harry really said, witness these nuts. Uh, question three, on August 21st, 2017, the continental U.S. experienced a total solar eclipse, the first in nearly 40 years. My question for you, in what year did Bonnie Tyler's song Total Eclipse of the Heart come out? So that is the question. I'm going to spin the wheel here, see who goes first. And we've landed on Aaron. So Aaron, what year did that uh, classic jam Debut. Uh, 1986. Alrighty, Aaron, it says 86. I got it marked down. Spinning the wheel for the second guess, and we've landed on Jason. Uh, what is your, what, what do you think for this? Uh, I am going to say 1989. Jason says 1989. Roger Dodger and Harry, over to you. When do you think Total Eclipse of the Heart came out? 1985. Look at that. I understand. I understand. You know not what you do. I forgive you. 
Uh, yea, verily, amen. A total eclipse of the heart first hit the airwaves in the year 1983. It's very <laughs> closest to that. Uh, everybody's on the board. We've got You've a just oh, my, my guess was actually going to be 1983 until I heard in, that. Uh, in a, in that... attempting to, to bring down me, you bring down yourself, Harry. Makes you think. As long as you're down here with me. Uh, everybody is simultaneously tied for first, last. It's a real glass half full, half empty situation. Uh, but everybody's tied up at one apiece. We've got two more questions to go here. Uh, next up, on August 24th in the year 79 CE, I think that's common era. Uh, don't correct me. Mount Vesuvius erupted, destroying the ancient cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum. At this present moment, how many volcanoes are considered active in the world? So how many active volcanoes do we got at this point in time? And we've landed on Aaron. So I feel like Harry's probably many active written a blog about this. Um, <laughs> Harry, have you written a blog about this? I really actually appreciate that, but no, I wish. Yeah, this, I would love to have topic. written a blog. Yeah, that sounds really fun. I write um, blogs about much less interesting subject matter. Bugs on LinkedIn. At, how many currently like active, like what was the specific term used? Uh, I, the phrasing of the question was how many volcanoes are considered active in the considered world active. At, at this point? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, 29. Maybe. Right. 29, 29. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, worthwhile guess. Um, I got your mark down here. Spin the wheel for the second guess. And we've landed on Harry. So Harry, who is not blogged about volcanoes or so he says, uh, what is your what is your pick here? And you know the frustrating thing about this question is I'm gonna like I have like a ninety percent chance of looking like an asshole because like if the answer was like three hundred I would be like oh yeah sure and then if you were like yeah two I'd be like oh of course yeah I'm gonna yeah. Uh, go somewhere in between those and go with um, fourteen I think I'm gonna go with fourteen okay all right Harry's going with fourteen and Jason over to you how many active volcanoes do you think there are I think the world is a terrifying place i'm gonna say i'm gonna just doom cast and say there are like 81 active volcanoes okay all righty 80 big place one. big place uh yeah a lot of people are saying that more and more in fact uh by the day as our uh, population continues to increase and volcanoes are, are still around how many We'll, we'll find out in just a few seconds. As of August 17th, 2023, there are 49 volcanoes in continuing Whoa. eruption status. Um, and I'm ripping this next part right from the Smithsonian's volcanic activity database, but an eruption marked as quote unquote continuing does not necessarily mean there's persistent daily activity, but it does mean that there's oh, that's been bullshit, at least- bullshit, Smithsonian. You're telling me that's a- erupting right now what and you're going to tell me that's not active? What hacks know? You know exactly. This is what are bullshit. those big media hacks know about science? But it does mean that there's at least intermittent eruptive events without a break of three months or more. Uh, so, they're, for context sake, they're typically uh, forty to fifty continuing eruptions at any given time, and out of those, generally around twenty will be actively erupting on any particular day. So, roughly twenty eruptions a day worldwide. Um, varying terrifying place. The world's a terrifying place. They um, tell you you Jason's can't just- touch that lava. Why? Why? They don't want you to have it. Yeah. They want it all for themselves. They're keeping it secret. Glowy, I'm going to get it. Beautiful looking. I'm going to stick it you in my pocket. Pick it up. I'm going to get an oven mitt. I'm going to stick it in my pocket, my back pocket, yeah. and I'm going to walk right off of there. Walk right out of a. They Soviet. want you to think like the, the people uh, have died and gotten injured from touching lava. It hasn't happened. Hasn't before. Never happened. Yeah. Never have you seen that? Have before. you been there? No. 
Uh, I like the idea of Jason just going down the uh, It's a Small World After All Disney World ride and just shaking his head the whole time. This is fucking bullshit. <laughs> oh, mercy. I uh, can't wait for more of us to get kicked off Twitter. Uh, our last question, on August 29th, uh, 2016, uh, we, we sadly lost Gene Wilder. Uh, he passed away on this day in history. What I'm going to do is list four notable Gene Wilder films, and what I'm going to ask each of y'all to do is rank them in order of most to least popular as gauged by letterboxed metrics. So I'll go ahead and give you those films now. Uh, we have 1967's The Producers. I'll read these slow because I see folks getting uh, pen and paper out. 1967's The Producers. We have 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. We have 1974's Blazing Saddles. And we have a young Frankenstein also from 1974. That's kind of wild. Uh, so the way this will work, dear listener, if you're unfamiliar with this uh, little shtick, uh, you will get a point or they will get a point. Uh, these fellows will get a point for each correctly slotted film. Again, going in the order of most to least popular as gauged by how often they're logged on Letterboxd. Um, and so if they, if they're like, like we said, there's going to be four films. If they get the order perfectly correct, they therefore will get four points. Uh, if they get two of them slotted correctly and two of them not slotted in the correct spots, they'll get two points and so on and so forth. And as many permutations as you could possibly imagine. So once again, those films were the producers from 1967, Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory from 1971, blazing saddles from 1974 and young Frankenstein from 1974. And I'm going to spin the wheel here to see who I can put on the uh, on the spot first. And we've landed on Aaron. Aaron, are you good to give us an order? Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of pressure on me as a young child growing up, Jewish dad. I, I Mel Brooks, I mean, number one in the house. For sure. Uh, uh, like, kind of undeniably. So if I biff this, my bad. My bad. Uh, here's <laughs> what I will say. Uh, I have no fucking clue about any of these. I'm going to go with... I guess Blazing Saddles most popular and then switch it up. Go with Willy Wonka number two, Young Frankenstein number three. And against maybe my better judgment, I'm going to go Producers number four just because it's the worst of those three Mel Brooks movies. Um, yeah, going to go in that order. Gotcha. Uh, I will yeah. just read those back quickly. So we got Blazing Saddles, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Young Frankenstein and the Producers. Do I have that? <laughs> order correct you have that correct and real quick i i don't think you could make blazing saddles today i've thought about it and i don't know if anybody's brought this up but i i don't know if that kind of content could be yeah because gene wilder's dead it's a good Mm. point that is that is the tier on our patreon uh if we get um how much did we say five hundred dollars uh, uh, yeah <laughs> yeah we, we, we'd give it we give it a swing on a shoestring budget uh surely it couldn't go that poorly right um well we'll we'll find out once we we hit that threshold finding out who we're going to um get the guesses from next we've got jason here uh so jason what uh hit us with your order uh if you, if you will it's it's it, it's aaron's but swap the first two so number one willy wonka I don't know how you say that's going to be anything less than the most popular. Yeah. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. Um, I'm just a humble Greek boy. Uh, I know nothing about this Jewish sense of humor from Mel Brooks. Um, Blazing Saddles uh, at number two, uh, Young Frankenstein at number three, and the producers at number four. Just, I've I've seen like 
producers has the, 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 the musical man. I, yeah. I'm, I'm starting know, to look at this list and ooh, it's looking a little shaky. I'm just going based on like the last five years of what I feel yeah, like yeah. I've seen General in popular discourse. culture. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm saying those because letterbox is always super heavily weighted since the pandemic. <laughs> like what no, people have been yeah, doing. You since guys got to remember letterbox users are dumb. That too. Dumb. No letterbox that is empirical. We've said this uh, every time, uh, but just because I'm a, I'm <laughs> on clay of the earth. More of it. The, yes, uh, that's, the that's one of my favorite jokes in any movie ever. <laughs> uh, because I'm a scatterbrained goofus, Jason, I'm going to read those back to make sure I have the, the listed order or your listed order correct. So I've got a Willy Wonka here, yes. followed by Blazing Saddles, yes. followed by Young Frankenstein, yes. followed by the Producies. Yes, 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 yes. Alrighty, gotcha. Um, and so with that, um, that is, we're now over to Harry. Uh, hit us with your order, please. Yeah, I'm going to go Willy Wonka number one, Young Frankenstein second for the Halloween bump, hoping, crossing my fingers, uh, Blazing Saddles number three, and The Producers number four. Thank you. Also, gotcha. I thought that this uh, question was going to be Gretchen-inspired, and it was just going to be, is Gene Wilder hot? The answer to which, of course, is yes. Yeah, of course. That's it. A, yes, B, yeah, C, uh, C, senor, or D, all of the above. Um, and you'd have to play it uh, play it that way. We did not go that route. We went this route. And the last sort of, um, I guess, verification I'll, I'll offer up here is for Harry, just to make sure I got your order correct. Um, we have Willy Wonka, followed by Young Frankenstein, followed by Blazing Saddles, followed by the producers. Is that accurate? That is correct. Thank you. All right. Gotcha. Well, we got those uh, locked in just to get ahead of it. I will say uh, uh, now, thank you. We have been bearing witness. I will now read the correct popularity order of these films as it was yesterday afternoon when I looked these up. So coming in hot in the first slot, we've got uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Fuck. Ha, hot on its heels, we have Young Frankenstein. Uh, followed by Blazing Saddles, and then the producers. So if my my tallying is correct, Aaron picked up a point in that round, uh, coupled with the two points that he picked up earlier in the game, that puts him at three. Jason got two points in that round, which coupled with the one he picked up earlier, puts him at three. And uh, Harry got the order perfectly correct, so add that, the, add that to the one that he picked up in round three, puts him at five. Harry is the victor of bearing witness. And so the POP, the pop-off platform, is his alone. Harry, have at it. I'm not really going to – I'm just going to say that I think that uh, we had a good game out there today. I think everybody put forward a a good effort. I think that uh, my opponent, Aaron, made the classic mistake that I've made many a time that I can't even (laughs) pretend not to. He overestimated Letterboxd. Uh, he had a Jewish dad. He had good taste in movies li- growing up. Yeah. He he overestimated, like grossly overestimated how many people have seen, hey, gro- <laughs> Willy, <laughs> Willy Wonka on top of that list is anti-Semitic. And I just need to, I, <laughs> no, I, he, I need to just truly. say, I don't know, what do you, what are we doing here? You know? I mean, like literally Roald Dahl, one of the more famous this is uh, my culture. public anti-Semites. Yes, and so, yeah, that's a great pretty, fucking pretty point, Harry. Messed up, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, overestimated Letterboxd, overestimated uh or underestimated the anti-semitism that's still unfortunately rampant in our uh international culture so thank you um for the victory um to 
anti-Semitism. And thank <laughs> you, stop. Thank stop you for talking. the most ill-advised POP I've yet heard on this long tradition of POPs. And thank you so much, listener, for tuning in for another episode of Try Love. Thank you, Cody, for ending us on another wonderful up note. Hope you can make it to more of these. Uh, it's been it's been a pleasure. Uh, we have. Uh, I, I will direct you once more to the Peter Weir series of the Trial Line, twenty twenty three September. Uh, I think the rest of these movies are somewhat widely available. I'll leave links where I can to the most easily accessible versions. Uh, read between the lines of that uh, in the show notes. Careful, don't get banned from Twitter or X or whatever the fuck they call it now. Also, check out the show notes for links to uh, John Blair's piece on Parasphere, the Trial Line blog about this. Uh, the nineteen eighty five review of Witness by Roger. Ebert, which Harry brought up earlier, and uh, the piece from which I pulled Peter Weir's quote, the original piece uh, by, I'm sorry, Virginia Campbell of Movie Line, no longer available on the internet, but there's a piece that uh, summarizes it and sort of captures that piece um, by Sven Mikulich for Cinephilia and Beyond. Excuse me, Cinephilia and Beyond. Check out all those links in the show notes. Cool places uh, to find out more about this movie. After you've already listened to this episode, of course, don't skip to this. If you, for some reason, skipped all the way past my last timestamp and jumped right into the outro, You've done it wrong. You should probably figure out your whole podcasting game before you get back into this. But I encourage you to check out more episodes of Trial of once you have your feet underneath of you, once you've got your, your podcast sea legs. Uh, we've covered a lot of movies, and chances are you've seen one or two of them. Maybe you love a couple of them. Check those episodes out. We may love, we may hate the movie. But if you liked this conversation, you'll probably like that one. Uh, go to trilon.org for cool ways to support the Trilon tickets and showings and merch and a lot of other cool stuff. They've got the rest of the year, I think, almost completely planned out, including some cool series we'll probably cover in the future. Uh, until then, find us on Twitter at Trilon Podcast. We post bullshit. And follow me on Twitter on, 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 on excuse me, at Nintendoofus. I also post bullshit. Uh, that's right. Just kidding. Uh, it's good bullshit, though, right? I don't know. Uh, bullshit is in the eye of the holder. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. Oh, wow. I, I want that on a bumper sticker. I've been special guest Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I like the uh, the fiction that, or the, the alternative reality that Jason posited, uh, where there's a type of guy who just skips to the end of Trial of Episodes to hear the soundtracks from these movies. He just, like, doesn't know how to find the soundtracks. He's just like, <laughs> I just want to hear the Witness soundtrack. Uh, so I'm just gonna like I'm gonna download Trilove and I'm gonna go ahead and skip to the hour fucking thirty. If mark if you so are that kind of a person, shit. I want you to di- direct message me immediately. I will put a ring on your finger and marry you. If you're the kind of person who does that thing, thank you so yeah, much. That sounds great. Uh, you can also at me at uh, Punish Take. I've been Harry Mackin. My name is uh, well, my name is the the censored, <laughs> the blacklisted uh, Aaron. Uh, I am not available on the internet. If you need me. Don't worry. You don't come for me. I come for you. You be careful out there among them English. <laughs>